Okay, so Easter is only five weeks away. I don't know if you <laughs> recognize that. It's like coming up really fast. So as a church, we are on the road to the cross so that then we can celebrate the resurrection. And we are looking so forward to that. But I want to lead you, before you get kind of swept up in Easter baskets or Easter eggs, which we get some college students here today. I don't know what happens on a Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday in a dorm room. Do you get Easter baskets or anything like that? I'm not sure. No? Okay, man. I'm so, go, go home and get, it, get something there. That's great. I'm so pumped you guys are here. Uh, but before we get into all that, I want to lead you uh, to deepen your understanding of Easter and of Jesus by looking at the story, the key moments of Jesus' life in the week leading up to his death. And so this is what we're going to do in the next several weeks. I want to lead you through that. But you know the story of Jesus is that he spent 30 years in relative obscurity. Uh, just growing up and working construction with his dad. That was it. And then he launched his public ministry. And uh, he spent three years traveling in a small, small region among mostly small towns, telling the story of the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is where we pick up. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, in Luke's biography about Jesus, says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. So at the end of three years of ministry, just a week before his death, he gets laser-focused on going into Jerusalem. Now, most of his ministry was in smaller towns. Jerusalem's the big capital city where the temple is. And, and as he sets his face on Jerusalem, he knew what fate awaited him there, and he was committed, determined to see it through. So today we're going to trace Jesus' first steps into Jerusalem. Uh, just one week before he died, it's known as his triumphal entry. And as we uh, look at this in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 21, you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to there. As we look at this, we're going to see two realities surface. As we look sort of over a big span of actually kind of a few stories that happen in one particular day, uh, we're going to see two, surface, two realities surface. The first reality is that Jesus did not meet people's expectations. Jesus did not meet people's expectations. But on the flip side, we're also going to see how people had failed to meet God's expectations. So we're going to talk about both of these here uh, in Matthew chapter 21, just about one week before Jesus' death on the cross. And before we get into how Jesus didn't meet the people's expectations, I want to read the first seven verses from Matthew chapter 21. So with me, uh, uh, just look with me into chapter 21, verse 1. It says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal and then they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. Now the first way Jesus didn't meet the people's expectations comes out in this really kind of silly story. 
You ever think about how silly this is that Jesus would send two disciples ahead into the town on their way into Jerusalem, knowing what's about to come, and he says, hey, go ahead of me, and you're going to find a donkey tied to a tree. Just go ahead and get it, and it's full, and just bring them both back to me. Uh, don't worry if the guy says, that, hey, what are you doing, taking my donkeys? Uh, just tell him the Lord sent you, and he needs them, and then he'll let them go. Okay, Isn't this kind of silly, right? Except that what we realize is Jesus is quoting a prophecy. And so the first expectation that Jesus did not meet was that Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not just a prophet. Now, throughout his ministry for three years, he was commonly referred to as a prophet. We see this even in this passage here in a few verses when we come to it, but it's understandable why. I mean, he was always quoting scripture. He was always calling people out for their sin. He was constantly at odds with the religious leaders. I mean, this is the recipe for ancient prophet, okay? So he was, he was a prophet, but he was not just a prophet. This is what's amazing about this story is that Jesus, uh, it, it takes it up a notch in this story. First, we see him prophesying about the donkey. What a silly thing to say, except that we know uh, when it comes true and it's fulfilled easily in verse 6 and 7, verse 4 and 5 reveal uh, why this is happening. And this is kind of the second thing that we see is that Jesus is not just prophesying, but he's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling prophecy. Verse 4 and 5, quote, Zechariah chapter 9. This is a 550-year-old prophecy. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been studying Haggai in the Old Testament, a minor prophet, just a small two-chapter prophecy in the Old Testament. And then right next door to Haggai in your Old Testament is the prophet Zechariah. And it's a little bit longer, but they are two guys in the same region at the same time, talking to the same people with just about the same message from God as the people have come back to their homeland, to the promised land, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. They're encouraging them toward faithfulness to God and to finish the temple project. Well, as they are establishing and reestablishing the kingdom of Israel, after they've been exiled to Babylon, Zechariah speaks up and he says these words. God speaks through him to speak these words that their king will be coming. Not like other kings riding on a, uh, you know, a, a, a white horse or something immaculate like this, but riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus fulfills this in a detailed way, almost to a silly way. This rare prophecy, 550 years old. Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he fulfilled prophecy. You know, this was only one of several hundred prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I mean, this is an unbelievable feat. The, the world has seen lots of prophets, um, not only ancient prophets, even more modern prophets. I was thinking this week about Nostradamus. I don't know if you've thought about Nostradamus or you studied him in school or whatever, but in the 16th century, uh, this guy ended up in France and he was writing all these prophecies about what would happen in the world. In fact, one of his uh, works included over 900 prophecies just wrapped up into one book just published and people read it and, and hung on to it and they waited to see would they come true. Well, even today, people argue about whether Nostradamus's predictions actually came true because the reality is he wrote very vague predictions. I mean, he was just like generic things that, you know, you could sort of squeeze 
any world event into like, oh yeah, it fulfilled that prophecy or this one, it's in, but maybe this other one did too. We're not super sure. Jesus, on the other hand, fulfilled hundreds of times over in extreme detail and nuance, exact ancient prophecies. I mean, this is incredible. It's never been repeated. Jesus is completely unique, and we have to reckon with that in our own lives, that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the fulfillment of all of God's prophecy. So this particular prophecy struck a chord with the people. It had been centuries since Israel had successfully governed themselves. From the Persians in the time of Zechariah to the Romans now in the time of Jesus, the Israelites longed for a national freedom. This is what their heart's desire was. And the promise of God's Messiah, which even Zechariah refers to, and even Isaiah refers to a couple hundred years before Zechariah, all the way back to the King David and even farther back into our Old Testament, the long-awaited Messiah, Savior, King had morphed for the people from a spiritual expectation into a political desire. They thought if we could just get out from under the yoke of our oppressors, we can flourish as a people. If we could just have our own government again, if we can just restore our nation, we can flourish as a people. And they lost sight of what God intended in his covenant promise for a Messiah, a Savior, King. And their hopes would be dashed because second expectation that Jesus didn't meet, Jesus wasn't a political hero. He just wasn't. I mean, his whole life, none of it, none of it said politi- politics at all, really. I mean, he just kind of almost uh, stayed away from that stuff. But let's see what happens here in verses 8 through 11. Chapter 21, 8 through 11 says, a, a very large crowd spread their clothes, clothes on the road. So he's coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. A very large, large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees. And spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, This is a wild scene. This impromptu parade forms around Jesus as and had all of Jerusalem stirred up, right, as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's shaking everyone up. They're going, what's going on here? Yet Jesus doesn't seem interested in the least. He's not rallying people. Matthew doesn't even really tell us if he acknowledges what's happening around him or if he responds in any way. So what is going on here? Well, when you study what's happened in Israel's recent history, uh, just uh, maybe a couple hundred years before this in the Maccabean Revolution and then other uh, moments in history where they thought a Messiah was coming to bring political freedom first, they would do things like wave palm branches around and and they would shout Hosanna, which is a word that means save us. 
And so what's happening here is they even quote from Psalm 118 that everything about the people's actions in response, the clothes, the palm branches, the psalm that they're shouting, all of it revealed the people's expectations, not for a spiritual Lord or King or Messiah, but a political rescue. Now, that is hard for us to see because the words sound very spiritual to us. Right? Hosanna! Blessed! And these are spiritual words that we use in church, right? But to the Israelites, over centuries and centuries of oppression and the desire to come out from oppression, thinking that they could flourish only if they had political freedom, these words morphed from spiritual covenant words to political words of nationalism. They, they shouted the son of David because 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God made a covenant with David, that his throne would be established forever and that one of his descendants would establish the throne and reign in that kingdom for eternity. And so they thought, the King David, you know, that, that maybe is the last time we really flourished as a people, as a nation, so we want God to restore that. So they called him the son of David. They shouted, Hosanna, which, which is a word that simply means save us. Save us. But they weren't saying to save us from sin. They were saying save us from the Romans. We're tired of this life. We're tired of being oppressed. We're tired of having somebody else govern us. We're tired of following their rules. Save us, won't you? You see, to the Jews in Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna was like crowds of people that you might have seen in the last few years in the U.S. shouting things like, make America great again, or build back better. I mean, it's a cry of nationalism. It's a cry of restore our nation. Pretty interesting. When they thought he was there to restore Israel as a nation, I mean, they swarmed the streets. Had they known that he was there to bring salvation through suffering, to bring a kingdom eternal through death, before resurrection, it would have been tumbleweeds in the street, not shouts of joy or praise. Jesus isn't a political hero. Not then, not now. That doesn't mean he isn't victorious. In fact, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 118, which are quoted here, these are victorious passages in the Bible about God's future Messiah, the long-awaited Savior King who will reign in victory forever. It's true about these things. They just misunderstood it. Their expectations were wrong. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. In fact, he exceeded their expectations for a Messiah. The Greek word in chapter uh, 21, verse 10, for the word uproar, I just think this is so curious. It's the same word that we get our word seismic from. So it says the city was in an uproar, which means that there was literally, it was a kind of an earth-shaking moment. There was seismic activity. It was changing everything, right? A huge shift was coming, but the people misunderstood what it was. Jesus exceeded their expectations. He is the Messiah. He is the promised son of David. This was his triumphal entry, even though he rides in on a donkey. He's triumphing over 
sin and death and all evil forever. He is uh, the Savior, the King of everything who would bring salvation from their enemies, even death itself. This is good, good news. And it's because of this that Jesus, despite the crowd, is able to continue on his journey to the cross, unfazed. So once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, which is kind of where we pick up at this point, in chapter 21, where do you think he would go? Well, those people thought they should just usher him straight to the Roman garrison. Like, okay, he's here. The long-awaited king, the one who will liberate us from the Romans, let's go get him, Jesus. But he doesn't go there. Some people may have thought that he would go straight to Herod's palace. And to clean out the corruption, that's, you know, Herod has, had, had mixed religion and politics to the point that it was unrecognizable. And he was an evil leader. Go, go rid Herod of, of his leadership, right? Go there. Maybe go to the marketplace, right? And right some of the wrongs that are happening there and some of our economic ills. But Jesus does something completely different. He goes straight to the center of Jewish life, the temple. The temple. You see, the people wanted a savior king who would come in and clean house. They just misunderstood which house really needed cleaning. But Jesus goes to the temple. He walks into the temple like he owns the place. I don't know if you've ever worked for somebody who owned a business uh, that you worked for, but they, they kind of come in differently. When I was in high school, I worked for the Barnharts, a sweet older couple who owned putt-putt golfing games in Longview. And uh, this was my high school job for multiple years. I loved it. It's the best job in the world. Uh, well, maybe except for this job, but, you know, if I could do that part-time again, I might because it was so much fun. But no matter how hard I worked at putt-putt, when the Barnharts walked in as owners, there was always something I'd missed. Because they saw things differently, right? Uh, they would see where there was like dust on the shelves or they would see where something was out of place or maybe where one of the machines was out of order. This is all. And then they would let me know. They would go, hey, I just noticed this on the way in. Can you, get, can you take care of that? Can you fix that? Right? Because that's just how owners operate. Well, this is the posture Jesus takes walking into the temple. It's the posture of an owner. But as he walks in, he's not looking for things out of order. Instead, he sees people out of order. And he calls out three things in the people where they had failed to meet God's expectations. There was a lack of prayer, a lack of praise, and a lack of fruit in their lives. We're going to talk about each of these quickly. A lack of prayer is where we're going to start. So read with me in verse 12 and 13 from Matthew chapter 21. As the story develops, Jesus enters Jerusalem and now goes into the temple. It says in verse 12, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Now, we like to talk about this as Jesus' anger, righteous anger, right? And it is. But don't miss the bigger picture here. The temple was designed to be a place for people to seek God for what he could give. But it had been twisted into a place for people to take what they could get from others. It was a perverted version of what God intended. 
The, the sounds of the temple had shifted from communion with God now to commerce. The temple leadership had become more like a mafia than a ministry. And this is a perversion of what God intended the temple to be. And Jesus notices it right away. That the temple, well, a place for defiled people to come and be restored to God through sacrifice, was now defiled itself. But Jesus was there to restore it. He quoted the prophet Isaiah from 700 years before that about the temple being a, a house of prayer. The temple is a house of prayer. God's house is a house of prayer, a place of connection with God. And he came to call out that people were no longer interested in connecting with God. But what's interesting and fascinating is that he himself was preparing to become the sacrifice by which people would be allowed to connect with God again in a personal way. Jesus was calling this out, this lack of prayer, this lack of connection with God. But he wasn't just telling them to fix it. He was coming to fix it. The second thing was a lack of praise. Look with me as we just continue reading here in verse 14, of chapter 21. It says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read, You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. What's going on in the temple? Don't miss this. As Jesus clears out the people who were buying and selling, as he's restoring the temple to a place where people can connect to God, he's simultaneously making room for people who have been most marginalized. Do you feel like you don't belong? There's a, there's a place for you in God's kingdom. Have you been marginalized before? Jesus will make room for you. This is who Jesus is. He brings in the blind, the lame, and guess who else? The children. I think this is such a beautiful picture, uh, but it's also kind of sad because the temple leaders were furious about this. I mean, you, wouldn't you want people to come and be healed? Wouldn't you want the sound of children's voices, right? But the temple leaders wanted their rules to be followed more than they wanted people to be healed. They, they wanted the sound of jingling coins more than the sound of children's voices. Can you imagine the hardness of heart that had developed in these leaders? Jesus is calling them out. It's like the old Jeff Foxworthy bit, here's your sign. You guys ever watch those? This is getting really old now, but Jeff Foxworthy just had a knack for calling out people for just being a little like, I don't know, like dumber than a box of rocks, okay? And uh, maybe they're not the sharpest tool in the shed. And he would say, here's your sign, right? Well, this is Jesus saying, here's your sign, scribes and Pharisees. God is no longer the object of your worship. I mean, I don't know if they had recognized it in and of themselves, but Jesus is there to call them out on it. And he quotes Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, that he has prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. I, I love how he brings that out. And he emphasizes the importance of children in the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is a theme for Jesus, but can I just tag on to this like a little note as your pastor, just trying to help create some of the ethos and, and uh, the culture of our church, that we will always choose Jesus's way when it comes to children. This is just who we are because it's who Jesus is. It doesn't matter if it's in the classrooms back there. In fact, last Sunday, one of our preteen leaders said, uh, could y'all hear us in the worship center during the second service? Because the fifth and sixth graders were pretty loud. And I was like, even if we did hear you, that would be great, okay? So it doesn't matter if they're in the classroom back there or in the hallways or on the playground. Maybe they're here in the room with us during worship. Can I just tell you, the sound of children is not a distraction to worship. The sound of children is worship. This is who Jesus is. So this is who we're going to be as a church. Uh, we love children here. And as I'm talking about this, I want to just remind you of where we are in the season of our church right now. 2023, we're in the middle of what we're calling the Homefront Initiative, making Christ the center of our homes. Now, you may go, well, I don't have kids in my house. Well, you might have grandkids around. Uh, you might be a student who has roommates or dorm mates, uh, apartment mates. That's your household, Okay. And so when we make Jesus the center of our household or our homes, uh, we're taking a few challenges this year. The second challenge we just started this week is the family devotional challenge. And for the next couple of months, we're challenging you to be the spiritual leader in your household by taking one day, one time a week for 15 minutes and leading a devotional for your family. That's it. If you need resources for that, if you need help toward that, we want to help you. There's incredible resources on our website. But I want to just put this in your ear. Psalm chapter 8 should be something you're writing down in your notes to go read with your family. It's a great, great psalm. Even our children's ministry was memorizing it last year. It's a great psalm to read when you got kids around. So Psalm chapter 8, just make a note of that. And then as you move toward growing your family and, and leading them in devotionals every week for 15 minutes, this would be a great, great option. So Jesus has called them out. Lack of prayer, lack of praise. And now he has one final indictment. The people, But he's already left the temple. He's already gone to Bethany and spent the night. But he's got one more thing to say, and it's about their lack of fruit. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once, the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What's going on here? Matthew links this strange story, maybe even stranger than the donkey story, to the temple. And he does it on purpose. So verse 17 tells us they'd gone to this little town of Bethany. And this town of Bethany is a, a, a town whose name could be translated House of Figs. And there was this fig tree in the House of Figs, Yet it had no figs on it. And so he curses it and it withers. 
this was Jesus's indictment of the temple. The people of God were there in the house of God, yet godliness was not being produced. And so Jesus effectively curses the temple. And the temple, as they know it, by the way, was about to become defunct anyway. Just like the fig tree withered in an instant, do you know what happened just one week from that point as Jesus hangs on a cross and his life fades away and he takes his very last breath and at that very moment, in an instant, what happens at the temple where the holiest place is divided from the normal places with a massive curtain, God takes it from the top and rips it all the way to the bottom and he opens up access to himself through Jesus' death. And so in an instant, the temple is rendered useless. What they had leaned on for their way to God was now defunct. It had no purpose. And so Jesus introduces this new way. That that ritual sacrifice was no longer the path to godliness. That Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross ushered in uh, this new way to relate to God. A new path to godliness, which was faith alone. And this is what verses 21 and 22 are all about. Now, yes, we we talk about these verses when we talk about prayer, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But before we get there, I want you to see the bigger picture that, yes, it's about prayer, but the context is Jesus introducing a new covenant of access to a relationship with God, right? Because of Jesus, we don't come to God through religious requirements. Instead, God came to us in Jesus who became the fulfillment of all religious requirements so that we could come into a relationship with God by faith. You see how seismic of a shift Jesus was bringing as he entered Jerusalem and goes to the temple and makes this declaration? Now let's talk about prayer for just a minute. Does anyone find this question that the disciples asked in verse 20 odd, strange, How did it wither so quickly? I'm not sure I would have asked the same question. I don't think about your your life too. If you were there with Jesus and you see him do that, I mean, maybe you would ask the how question, but I think I would want to ask why. Why, Jesus? Why would you do that? I mean, if you look at the timing of this event, like actually the figs weren't even supposed to be there yet. Like the leaves were there, but the figs were coming. So why? Why? Now, I think that when it comes to prayer, a lot of us a lot of us are distracted or preoccupied with the why question. That we want answers from God before we believe God is who he says he is or can do what he says he can do. God, why did you choose to do this this way? God, why did you allow evil into the world? God, why did you make me the way you made me? God, why? Why aren't things working out the way for me that I thought they should? God, why did you make me get that diagnosis? God, why did I have to go through that suffering? God, why? We're so preoccupied with the question of why that it's keeping us from experiencing the miracles of God. If we would just come to him in amazement like the disciples did and go, whew, how'd that happen? I can be a part of that? Because Jesus answers the how question. Did you see it? He says in verse 21 and 22, if you have faith, 
In verse 22 says, if you believe. So the disciples, amazed by Jesus, asked how. This is the answer. It's by faith. The same word for believe in verse 22 is just the active version of the word faith in verse 21. So here's maybe a better way to read verse 22. Verse 22 could say, if you live by faith, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. You want more prayers answered? Instead of making prayer a religious ritual, make prayer a way of life that's as regular to you as the breath in your lungs. Practice prayer like that. I guarantee you'll see God work and you'll be amazed. How about just having a fruitful life? Bearing spiritual fruit. Don't reduce the Christian life to going to God's house on occasion, as many people have mistakenly done. But instead, remember what God did through Jesus was come to us so that he could make his home in you and go with you through life. So practice remembering that Jesus, he didn't take the temple away and curse the temple just because we weren't good enough. He did it because there was a better way. He did it because he longed for you and I to have a relationship with God through faith. That not we have to go to him, but he would come to us and live in us. And then we would see mountains move. I read this quote this week that said, faith can move the metaphorical mountain of vain religion. Do you ever get tired of going through the motions? Do you ever wonder if something real is happening when you show up to church, when you open your Bible, when you sing praise songs? Do you ever wonder if it all is making a difference? Faith is what makes the difference. Because we don't come to God by our activity spiritually. We come to him in faith. And then we see him working in our activity. We've got to get the order right. It's so funny that 2,000 years ago, Jesus had to correct this with the people of God, and we still have to correct it today. How many people do you know think that they have to do things right before God will accept them? That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came to us to take the punishment of our sin on himself, to become the sacrifice, to fulfill the purpose of the temple so that he could actually become the temple for us and we could have access to God through him. Because he is the king of eternity. So here's how I want to end today. Uh, I want our worship team to come up and just lead a simple chorus and give you just a moment to respond. And I want to lead you to answer two questions. Here's the questions. Do I understand Jesus correctly? Because the people had different expectations of Jesus than who he really was, right? A lot of people think Jesus is just a prophet, just a good man, maybe a moral example, maybe an important person in history. Who do you say that Jesus is? It goes all the way back to the scripture that Faith read earlier. Who do you say Jesus is? C.S. Lewis says, he must be Lord. If Jesus is not Lord, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you understand him correctly? Do you need to submit to him 
as king of the universe and king of your life. The second question is this, is how would Jesus find me if he walked in? When Jesus came into the temple, he found people who were out of sorts, out of order. How would Jesus find me if he walked in? And if I respond to him in faith, he will make me right with God and set me on the right path. Psalm 43 says, he lifted me from the miry clay and set my feet on a rock. So if you feel like you're in a mess, don't turn away from Jesus, turn to him. That's where you'll find surety, sure foundation. Would you pray with me? God, lead us to a response to you this morning that glorifies you, that leads us further down the path of righteousness because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. God, make our relationship with you as regular as the air we breathe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.